All right, let's uh, remain standing. Uh, we didn't get a chance to do this together last week because I was gone. So we have a new verse for the month. Um, she's got some extras there. Uh, so each month, we as a church memorize a verse together. And our verse for this month is John 6, 29. And so we recite this verse each week uh, together. We've got some resources outside to memorize them on your own. But let's start by reciting our verse for today. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You may be seated. Um, so I have uh, just realized that I've done the most unspiritual thing ever. Uh, my Bible is back there. I'm up here without my Bible. It's in the front, the front pocket of the black backpack uh, that's sitting next to Eli. Yeah. <clears throat> Your sin has destroyed you. You can't be forgiven for something as bad as this. You did it again? God has probably already given up on you. Thank you. No one is going to love you once they know what's happened to you. You're no good anymore. Anything good you had is gone. What kind of desire is that? What are you, a freak? No one else struggles with this like you do. No one would understand why you do this. Perhaps some of you have heard statements like this whispered in your mind, echoing in the darkness of your imagination. These statements are spoken by an enemy that we call shame. Whether you admit to talking to yourself out loud, all of us do it. Um, we all have an external dialogue with ourselves, but we also all have an internal dialogue. And this internal dialogue is a combination of various voices and influences, including your own thoughts, the voice of the Holy Spirit, words whispered by the enemy, words of other people in your mind, your imagination, all running at the same time, creating this cacophony of dissonant voices. The problem is that many times the things that those voices are saying are simply not true. These voices often tell us lies, and often we believe them. And one of the most important things that we have to do as Christians is to manage this internal dialogue and determine what is true and hold on to that. We have to discern the voice of God speaking to us and train ourselves to block out all of the other voices. 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. One of the voices that every one of us has to face is the voice of shame. For some, that voice is much louder than it is for others. And typically that voice comes from one of two places. Something that you have done or something that has been done to you. Sinful choices that you have made or Sinful choices made against you, or both. Ed Welch, author of Shame Interrupted, says that guilt and shame are different. Guilt says, I did something bad, whereas shame says, I am bad. And that causes us to be identified solely with our sin. In 1850, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a novel called The Scarlet Letter, which takes place in June of 1642 in the Puritan town of Boston. Yes, back then, Boston was just a town. A crowd is gathered in the town square in front of the dreaded scaffold to witness the official punishment of a young woman named Hester Prynne who has been found guilty of committing adultery. Hester Prynne is a recent arrival to the town of Boston, 
having arrived on a ship from England. But her husband did not arrive with her. He is presumed to have been lost at sea. The problem is, Hester has been in Boston for longer than nine months, and she has a baby. And the other problem is that the Bostonians know how to do math. So, obviously, this child is not uh, conceived by her husband. So as a punishment, a scarlet-colored A is sewn to her dress as a permanent symbol of her adultery. But even as they are publicly shaming her on the scaffold for three hours, she still won't give up the name of whoever her secret lover was. A plot twist soon appears in the form of her husband, who she thought was lost at sea. Now he's shown up and, of course, is pretty angry that Hester is pregnant, and his mission becomes to find out whoever this secret lover is and punish both of them and exact revenge. So without telling anybody else who he is, he takes on a new name, and he becomes the town doctor. Chaos ensues over the course of many chapters. Hester and her illegitimate child, Pearl, are outcasts, and they live in an isolated cottage at the end of town. Hester is the scorn of the townspeople, not only for her adultery, but also for her refusal to admit who her secret lover is and repent of her sin. And so Hester is questioned by the mayor together with the minister of her church, Arthur Dimsdale. But she still will not speak. So she lives an isolated life, making a living as a seamstress. Pearl, the child, is an outcast as well because of who her mother is. As Pearl grows up and begins to be rebellious as a result, the church members suggest that Pearl be taken away from Hester. Minister Dimsdale intervenes on her behalf, saving the day for now. But his health is rapidly declining, even though he's young. Now enter the town doctor, who no one else knows is Hester's husband. Dr. Angry begins to treat the minister only to find some disturbing evidence that's about to turn everything upside down. Spoiler alert, you've had 200 years to read this. Spoiler alert, Minister Dimsdale is the illegitimate father of the child. The two decide that they're going to sail away together with Pearl and start a new life. But, racked by guilt, Minister Dimsdale stands in front of the town and preaches a rousing gospel sermon the following Sunday, the best of his entire life, and then publicly admits his guilt and removes his shirt and reveals an A that he has branded into his own chest. And then he collapses and dies. Dr. Revenge uh, dies also shortly after that, leaving his wealth to Pearl. She and Hester sail away to Europe Pearl begins a new life of her own. Years later, Hester returns to Boston, still wearing the scarlet letter. And when she dies, she is buried next to the minister, and both of them have scarlet A's permanently on their tombstones. The end. <laughs> it's quite a tale. It is a tale of shame and stigma. The humiliation of having one's secret sins exposed to the public. And the enduring theme that lasts to today is the idea that our sin causes us to wear a scarlet letter, which is a permanent sign of our shame. Perhaps some of you have felt as though you have that A on your clothes, visible for everyone to see your sins. Others of you may feel that that A is branded to your chest, under your clothes, and the only one that knows about it is you. So you either live in public shame or in private torment, racked by the guilt and fear of being found out. In either case, shame whispers to you and tells you that you are worthless because of what you have done. 
We're now in the second week of our series entitled Worthful. And we're working rather quickly through the book of Ephesians and studying it from the angle of understanding our eternal worth and our identity in Christ. Last week, we talked about how often we tie together worth and merit as though worth is something that you have only earned. But that is not at all the case. Before the creation of the world, God already knew you and already loved you and orchestrated an infinite number of causes and effects in order to bring you to a place of relationship with Him. You are full of worth because God has filled you with infinite worth. And so today, we're going to look at why the voice of shame is full of lies and how the grace of God sets you free and removes the scarlet letter. So, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of your own works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is the Word of God. So, last week I gave you a background of the book of Ephesians, so we're not going to revisit that. If you missed that, I encourage you to catch up on the podcast um, or on the Facebook page. Um, I said last week, but I meant two weeks ago because last week this guy was preaching. So, two weeks ago, uh, we, we uh, were in Ephesians 1. So, since we're not going to go over the background, let's jump right in to point number one. Point number one is this. Every person wears the scarlet letter. Every person wears the scarlet letter. One of the most powerful weapons that shame wields is its power to isolate us from other people. 
the very clear consequence that was suffered by Hester Prynne because of her adultery is that she becomes a pariah. She's an outcast. She alone is viewed as sinful, and the townspeople are good, righteous, upstanding people. So there's a clear social distinction between the sinner and the saints. And I'm sure that some of you have experienced the internal urge to isolate yourself. Others of you may have even experienced external pressure from townspeople to isolate because of what you've done. Paul, however, begins chapter 2 of Ephesians by making a very clear assertion, and that is that every single one of us has that red A. Here in verses 1 through 3, once again, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here, Paul makes it abundantly clear, unmistakably clear, that every single one of us was, or still is, controlled by sin and followed the passions of the flesh. No one is uniquely sinful. Now that doesn't mean that every sin that we commit has the same uh, effect in terms of the damage that it does, right? That, that doesn't mean that to steal a loaf of bread is equivalent to leading a holocaust. But what it does mean is that every person was, or still is, if they are not in Christ, equally dead in their sins. Every single person is guilty. Every single person was, or is, controlled by the passions of the flesh. A slave to their own impulses. Now what does shame do? Shame does what the townspeople did in Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel. Shame seeks to place you on a stage, on a scaffold, in front of the entire village and put a scarlet letter on your chest and paints you to be the town harlot. It says to you, everyone else in the town is good, but you, you are uniquely sinful. You are especially sinful. What you have done ought to earn you this reputation as being marked by your sinfulness. That's what happens to Hester Prynne in the novel, right? She becomes an outcast. And she lives in a cottage all alone with her illegitimate child. And that fate is also passed down to the child, even though the child herself is innocent. Pearl in the novel doesn't have any friends at school either because everybody knows who her mom is, the town hoe. God forbid anybody else befriend Pearl lest her mother's influence somehow rubs off on you. Almost as if her harlotry has some, some sort of voodoo curse, apparently. Careful, it might spread. And so, Hester Prynne lives her entire life in isolation. And that is what shame aims to do to every single one of us. It says to us, you did that? No one is as sinful as you. Imagine what's going to happen when everybody finds out. They're going to bring you to the scaffold. You had better keep this a secret and make sure that nobody finds out because if they do, it's going to be a scarlet letter for you for the rest of your life. And what if your sin is found out? Well, then shame tells you, you better isolate. Sorry, this is who you are now. You have forfeited your place in the community with all the good townspeople. 
that is your penalty. But what does Paul do here? First, Paul says, yes, absolutely, you were dead in your sins. He doesn't reduce that, right? He doesn't release us from our sin by reducing our sinfulness. That is what the world tries to do. The world tries its hardest to take every sin and turn it into a virtue. Sexual immorality? No, that's just freedom of expression. Pride? No, that's just self-love. Lust? No, that's just celebrating beauty. Murder? No, that's just bodily autonomy. Selfishness? No, that's just self-empowerment. Hatred? No, that's just properly vilifying real villains. The list goes on and on and on. The world tries to tell you morality is relative, live your truth, and unshackle yourself from old and obsolete religion. And that way, you'll never feel shame because there's nothing to be ashamed of. Unless, of course, you're guilty of real sins like having traditional views of morality and things like that. Well, then you're a pariah. That's your scarlet letter and you'll be the outcast for that. But the point is, Paul, on the other hand, does not attempt to remove the scarlet letter by saying, don't worry, everybody's fine. Don't worry, you didn't do anything wrong. Don't worry, we're all basically good. He doesn't do that. He rightly emphasizes the depth of our sin. He rightly says, you were dead in your transgressions. You walked in sinfulness. You blindly followed the influence of Satan himself. Paul, much like Jesus, never lowers the bar so that people will be able to meet the standard. He raises the bar. Jesus always raised the bar of holiness. He paints an accurate picture of our moral standing outside of Jesus Christ. He paints an accurate picture of our desperation for a Savior. But then second, what, what, does, he, what does he do next? If you look at verse 3, he says this, Among whom we all among whom we all lived in the passion of our flesh. Later there in, in, in verse 4, he says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, all our and the rest. What is he doing in using these words? He is looking at the townspeople gathered in front of the scaffold and he is saying, every one of you belongs up here and so do I. Elsewhere, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. And so Paul looks at all the townspeople gathered and says, form a single file line everyone's going to come up here to get their own scarlet letters. Nobody's, nobody's innocent. Paul here eloquently levels the playing field. No one is exempt. No one is righteous. In Romans 3, Paul expresses this same thought by saying, no one is righteous, not even one. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. No one is good. Every single person is guilty. And you know what one of the things is that that ought to do for every one of us? It ought to remove any pride, any self-righteousness that we possess. 
It ought to create in us a response that if we're the townspeople looking up at the person who's being shamed on that scaffold, we might go, yeah, uh, I belong up there too. I have no business being down here. I'm just as sinful as they are. It ought to remove any idea that we can look down our noses at the sinfulness of others while neglecting our own sinfulness. Jesus said himself, Why do you pick out the speck in your brother's eye and ignore the plank in your own eye? Our response should be to view every sinner as a peer rather than as a peon. And then internally, for every one of us, as it relates to the voice of shame, it ought to remove the power that shame has to isolate us from others. Because when shame speaks, shame says, you're worse than everyone. Everyone else in the town is a good person, but not you. They haven't done what you have done. They haven't sinned like you have sinned. You do not belong in upstanding community. Go and live in your isolated cottage at the end of town. And any time that you do enter the town, make sure you take note of the way that people stare down their nose at you. And don't try to escape their judgment, because you've earned it. Paul, in response, levels the playing field and he says, All, our, the rest, no one is innocent. We are all wearing a scarlet letter. And so oddly enough, one of the most freeing things that you need to hear is this. You are desperately guilty of sin. But so are all of us. This is a boat that we are all in. Every one of us lost. Every one of us dead in trespasses and sins. But that then leads us to one of the most beautiful phrases in all of Scripture. Verse 4 begins with two of the greatest words ever written. But God. But God. Rewinding to verse 3, Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Here's point number two. Scarlet letters are no match for God's love. Scarlet letters are no match for God's love. We covered in week number one the truth that before you ever lived, God already loved you. Before you ever lived, He already knew everything there was to know about you. He knew every thought that you would ever think, every action that you would ever do, every word that you would ever speak, every deed, every detail of your life. And He loved you. And do you know what that means? That means that God in our lives not only saw your before, He also saw your after. Uh, my wife and I have been on a fitness journey for the last couple of years, and we are seeing these amazing before and after pictures. And we're looking at what we once were and what we are now and what we hope to be in the future, and there's this stark transition. Because this is new to us. This after is is new, and, and that before is old, and so there's a, a very sequential view of the before and the after. That was then, this is now, and it follows in that order. But to God, in His view, He doesn't see sequentially like that. He sees the whole picture. All of time is laid out before Him. He sees 
every part of our life in the before and in the after and loved both. That means that we don't have to get to whatever that after is in order to earn his love for us. God loved us in the before. And and here's what else that means. God knows every single sin you are ever going to commit in your entire life. You don't. None of us know how long we're going to live, right? Any of us could die today. Any of us could live another 20 years. None of us know when the last day will be for us. God knows that. None of us know what kind of sins we're going to commit tomorrow or the day after or the day after that. When we do those things, it's going to catch us off guard. We're going to say things like, I can't believe I did that. But God already knows what's going to happen. God already knows the full list. List it out. Every sin you will ever commit in your entire life, that means that nothing you do is ever going to surprise him. Nothing you do is ever going to catch him off guard. Nothing you ever do is going to just finally push him to the edge. And he's been holding out, but now, now he's been pushed on the edge. And nothing will surprise him and shock him. And, and, and you do this, and he goes, Oh, myself. I had no idea you were going to do that. I wouldn't have saved you if I knew you were going to do this. I mean, come on, this is too far. I put up with this and this and this, but this? No more. See, we do that with each other because we don't have that omniscience that God has, but God already knows what it is. And His work on the cross atoned for it already. The the price has already been paid. So you don't have to be afraid that your sin is too great for him to bear because he already bore it. On the cross, he already bore every penalty for every sin you will ever commit. If I live for 70 years, then every sin I commit in those 70 years, God already knows and he already died on the cross for every single one. God knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, and he's already paid for it. And regardless of whether my sin catches me off guard and makes others or myself reevaluate what kind of person I am, God already intimately knows that future. Have you ever considered the freedom that comes from that? Now, hear, hear me. I'm not saying that that means we just shrug and go, well, God's already paid for it, so I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to rack up the charges, right? Like if somebody is at dinner with you and says, hey, my treat, and you go, okay, well then what's the most expensive thing on the menu? Let me get that. That is a cheap view of God's grace, and that is not what I'm advocating. What I'm advocating, like Paul would, is to say, how wonderful is the grace of God How amazing is His mercy. How lavished is His love. I ought to live in response to that and I ought to see that shame is lying to me. The way that sin tries to keep me in shackles, it's not true. These lies that have been spoken over to me by myself, by the enemy, maybe even by others that say your sin defines you and disqualifies you, Well, this says God's already paid for it. I'm free. Satan wants to push you deeper into shame and make you believe that God would never love a person like you because look at what you've done. And, And here, Paul makes it very clear, you were dead in your sins. Dead in your sins. But even then, in your deadness, God already loved you, even at your worst. And let me also say, even if your worst is right now, even if your worst is yet to come, He already loves you. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you 
more than what he already does. There's no good thing that you can do to earn more of his love. Conversely, there is nothing you can do to make him love you any less. There is no sin that you can commit that would remove that love. Minister Dimsdale lived his entire life in fear of being found out. He tortured himself to the point of death. He branded himself. And he deteriorated his physical body with shame. This is what led to the man's death in the story. He saw the way that the town treated Hester. How much more would they scorn the minister? How ironic is it that the one person in the story that should have known better than anyone how God's love works is the one who lived in it the least. And so he tortured himself in secret shame to the point of his death for his entire short life. Truthfully, I can identify with that a bit. Because, like Dimsdale, I stand up and preach the gospel every week. And so many times I have lived in fear of being known and being seen. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that God did a mighty work of tearing open my shirt and showing the scarlet letter that I had branded myself with. But when he did that, I was rescued from Dimsdale's fate. God showed me his amazing grace. I became fully known and realized that I was still fully loved and in doing so realized that the voice of shame had been lying to me for my entire life. I would still have love. I would have even deeper community, which is what we're going to talk about next. I I could walk in freedom and in wholeness. Have you ever experienced that? Deeply consider, have you experienced that kind of freedom? Hear me. Nothing is too powerful for the love of God to overcome. No sin No wound, no addiction, no habit, no scar, no action is beyond the power of God's grace because He already loved you when you were dead in your sin. God already loved us before the scarlet letter even got pinned on our chest. And He loves us still with it there. And... And there is a beautiful future in store. Look uh, at verses 6 through 10. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. I'm sorry, in them. Shame tries to tell you that you are worthless. The gospel tells you, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good. That you are not a symbol of evil, rather you are a symbol of the immeasurable riches of His grace. The the gospel says that you have been given a tremendous gift that you did not earn, and because you didn't earn it, you also can't undo it. You are a masterpiece of worthfulness. Nothing and no one else can offer that promise to you. Nothing. And all that that shame tries to tell, tell us is you are a symbol of this evil. There is nothing good left for you. God says, 
Oh, no, no, no. I have a future for you that, that's way better than you could ever imagine. I have something planned for you that you could not have done on your own. I have created you for something good. I have created you as a beautiful work of my display of immeasurable riches of grace. I have something planned for you that you can't do on your own. Do not live in this negativity. You must live in the truth of the gospel, of what I accomplish for you and through you. Shame tries to tell you that you're always going to be defined by that sin. God says, I have a definition for you that is in me. I will define you by who you are in me, and it's beautiful. And nothing and no one can take that away. And it doesn't end there. Here's point number three. God's grace unites all the scarlet letters into a song of worship. God's grace unites all the scarlet letters into a song of worship. Take a look at verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember what you used to be. You were Hester Prynne, wearing a scarlet letter, standing on the scaffold, being publicly shamed. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, us and the townspeople who rejected us before. Both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens and scarlet letter wearers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here we see that God takes you and unites you to his body. He unites you to the people that shame would have separated you from. People that have seen you as outcasts. It says here in, in verses 16 and, and, and verse 14 that God kills the hostility, right? It, it, it says, He has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, Might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Killing the hostility between God and us and between us and each other. His grace kills the hostility. And also kills our sin. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ has covered your sin. If you are in Him, the blood of Christ covers your sin and kills the hostility. And then takes the outcast and the townspeople and joins them both together in himself. Shame isolates you. Christ unites us together as his people. Every single one of us has a scarlet letter, right? One of us might have an A. Another, 
an L. Another, it might be a Q. And what God does is he, he takes all those letters and he rearranges them and puts them in the correct order and then he joins them together in himself and the result is a beautiful gospel story told one person at a time. Your letter, next to my letter, next to your letter, next to her letter, next to each other letter, all together spelling out a worship song that only the grace of God could write. And that song is an eternal song, a thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more that will be sung to God together as the one who unites us in Him. God takes every scarlet letter and uses it to write the gospel story. That is an incredible promise. And so again, I have to ask you, have you experienced this free gift of grace? Or are you still walking in shame? Whether you have ever come to Christ or not, that question still applies. Obviously, if you've never come to Jesus, you are still dead in your trespasses. You need the grace of God to set you free. But even those who have come to a place of surrender in Jesus have ways that they're still walking in shame. I, I'm, I'm an example of that. Have you, by God's grace, been fully known? Here's the thing. In the story, Hester Prynne never repented of her sin. Her solution was to continue to wear that scarlet letter as an act of defiance. She knew that there was nothing that she could do to remove it, and so she wore it as a badge of honor. That is what you see in the world. I'm going to wear this scarlet letter as an act of defiance. I'm just going to own it. This is part of who I am. And in doing so, what she did was forfeit the life that she could have had. Dimsdale did the same thing. Don't make that same mistake. Christ offers the free gift of grace through repentance, through coming to Him and surrendering and saying, I want to be fully known, and in being fully known, also be fully loved. And to the body, and in doing so, be free, so that the scarlet letter can be used to spell the gospel story. You may have heard that everyone has skeletons in the closet. We all have skeletons in the closet. And here's the thing. Most of us, what we try to do is we take that skeleton and we try to bury it as far back in that closet as we possibly can. Put enough stuff in front of it so that no one will ever find it. But eventually that thing somehow finds a way to burst out the door. But rather, rather than trying to shove that skeleton as far back in the closet as you possibly can, wouldn't it be better if that skeleton, along with all the other skeletons, could form a choir, a choir that sings the story of God's grace? That is the gift that is offered to us, and I urge you, my friends, to accept. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this free gift of grace. Thank you for the gospel offer that every one of us equally dead in our sins, every one of us equally desperate for your grace, can all be given the same gift. A gift that none of us earned. A gift that you give us out of the goodness of your own love, lavished upon us. God, I pray that if there is anyone here or anyone watching online or listening on the podcast who has never accepted the free gift of your love, that tonight, Lord, tonight you would draw them to yourself. That you would draw them to a place of surrender. That you would bring them to a place where they say, I want you to take over my life. I want you to pay the penalty of my sin. I want to be a part of your body. I want you to be my Lord. And God, I pray that if there's anybody under the sound of my voice that has secret sin that is yet to be revealed, Lord, that you would do them the gracious work of revealing that sin 
in the community. Bring them to a place of openness where the body might surround them and rather than shaming them, build them up. God, if there's ways that shame is lying to us, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak the truth into our hearts. You would set us free. God, nothing is greater than your love. And so, Lord, whatever decisions we need to make, whatever ways that you need to poke and prod in our souls, God, I pray that you would do that now. Lead us one step at a time to a place of surrender and to a place of freedom and to a place of understanding that you love us so, so much. That you desire for us to be a community of people built together in you. Lord, let the, the worship song that this church sings be one of freedom from sin and gratitude for grace and worship for all that you do in us and through us. So as we sing our closing song, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us in whatever way you decide, in, in whatever way each of us needs. And may this gospel of grace penetrate deeply into that darkness of shame. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we will close in worship. Thank you.